Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are, confin- we are finishing our series this morning on confessions of Christmas. And remember, confessions in the sense of confessions of faith, not confession of sin. And since I've been urging you to memorize these, you know, of course, we must begin today with a review. And so we began week one when we heard John the Baptist say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then last week we heard a new disciple named Nathaniel say, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And you notice that in both of those confessions there are titles for Jesus, confessing him to be the long-awaited for Messiah. We said that his purpose there in week one as the Lamb of God was to come and save his people from their sin. And we said in week two that he had the power to do that because he is indeed the Son of God, the King of Israel. Today's confession is going to be a little bit different in that there are no titles in this confession for Jesus as the Messiah. Instead, this confession can be seen as a response. That is, it is our response to the two confessions we've already seen. Because he is the Lamb of God, because he is the Son of God, then what is going to be our response? That's what we're going to talk about today. Now, I began both of the previous sermons with an Old Testament story, primarily because in those texts there were Old Testament quotes and or allusions that we tied in to the New Testament Scripture. Today, there is no quotation or allusion in this text, but For the sake of continuity, I decided to begin with an Old Testament story anyway. The Old Testament story is going to serve as an example of what we see in these verses. And that Old Testament story comes from the life of a very well-known man by the name of David. You might know him as King David. And he had a very good friend by the name of Jonathan. Jonathan, of course, was Saul's son. Saul was the first king of Israel, and Jonathan was his son. Which meant, of course, that he was next in line to be the king of Israel. Saul and David were, of course, not friends. In fact, Saul on multiple occasions tried to kill David. He searched for him high and low across all of the region, intent on bringing about his death. And he wanted him dead because David was a challenger, not only to his own kingdom, but certainly to the ongoing kingdom of his son, Saul was infuriated when the crowds sang, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. He wouldn't stand for anyone else getting more glory or more credit than he himself was afforded. But in spite of this animosity, David and Jonathan forged a friendship, a friendship that was greater than even the royal lineage. Now, we have no indication that Jonathan was ever jealous. There's no scripture that tells us that Jonathan was bitter or angry. There was no competitive spirit within him that drove him to pursue the throne at all costs. 
You see, the natural thing for Jonathan would have been to distance himself from David because David was a rival for his future. He would have distanced himself from him so that he himself would have been the next king. Instead, Jonathan seems to understand that David was indeed God's anointed and would be the next king. And so Jonathan quietly slips from the pages of history, simply telling David that when you become king, will you be kind to whatever ancestors I have left? That story is going to be echoed in our New Testament story today. We are now in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, as we examine our third confession, but the second confession that comes from the lips of John the Baptist. Here we are going to see that when we know God's purpose, that is, the Lamb of God, and when we know he has the power to fulfill that purpose, that is, he is the Son of God, then what is our response? Our response is going to be to declare the priority of God. And when I say the priority of God, I do not mean merely on Sundays or on Christmas. I'm talking about the priority of God for all of our lives. So look with me at John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing. And all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Of course, our confession is found there in that last verse, verse 30. And again, it's short enough and memorable enough for you and I to memorize it. But I'll think, I think you'll agree that as easy as it might be to memorize it, it is much more difficult to put into practice on a daily basis. He must increase, but I must decrease. Our story begins with what I'm calling dueling ministries. Now, that's our first point, as long as you understand that it is not dueling ministries on the minds of Jesus or John. But it is dueling ministries on the hearts and minds of John's disciples, and their thoughts are what instigate this whole scene. We have moved forward in the ministry timeline of Jesus, though we do not really know how far. We simply hear the words, after this. Now, chapter 2 was taken up with the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And then Jesus takes a trip to Jerusalem for the Passover. 
And there he cleansed the temple, something he will do once again at the later stages of his ministry, according to the other gospel writers. And then in chapter 3, we have that well-known dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus, which leads to, arguably, the greatest verse in all of the Bible, John 3, 16. So after all of this, Jesus goes out with his disciples into the Judean countryside. We do not yet know whether there are more disciples than the four or five that we were introduced to last week. You might remember that Jerusalem is actually in Judea, so when it says he goes out into Judea, it means that he left the city of Jerusalem where he had been celebrating the Passover, and now he is ministering in more rural areas of the countryside. Now, by the way, all of this John chapters 2, 3, and 4, all of this takes place before any of the ministry that is highlighted or recorded for us in the other gospel narratives. We know that because of the parenthetical statement that John makes. He says, John the Baptist is not yet in prison. Now, that seems obvious, right? I mean, why would he need to make that statement? If he's out in the Judean wilderness and he is ministering and baptizing, it's obvious that he's not in prison. But John, the gospel writer, tells us that so that we know that he knows. And John the Baptist is going to be arrested shortly hereafter. All of that to say this takes place before the narratives you find in the other gospels. And so we have both Jesus and John out in the Judean countryside with their disciples and also crowds of people coming to both of them in order to hear what they have to say and be baptized. Though John later qualifies in chapter 4 that Jesus was not personally baptizing anyone, but it was his disciples who were baptizing on his behalf. Now, we do not know the locations that are mentioned in verse 23. It is likely a part of Samaria, so they are not ministering side by side, but they are ministering close enough so that word is getting out about what is transpiring with both disciples, or both men and their disciples, and that is what is troubling John's disciples. This leads to a competition in their eyes. So they have a discussion, the text tells us. Now that word discussion is a word that married couples use when they've had an argument, but they don't want other people to know how severe their argument was. And so they say, we had a discussion. And that's likely what is going on here. This is probably more heated than what we might think of when we read these words. The debate had something to do with purification. And that calls our attention back to chapter 2 and that wedding. Because the water that Jesus turned into wine at that, at that wedding, which was his first public miracle, the water was in purification jars. And so we don't know exactly what this argument was about, but it seems to have something to do with baptism and purification rites of the Jews and how these two things could possibly come together. But when John's disciples come to John, that is not their concern. They do not ask him about baptism. They do not ask him about purification. What they ask him about is competition in ministry. John is losing followers. And those followers that were once his are now going out to this new guy. Though they are likely exaggerating when they say all are going to him. 
Implied in this statement is this. John, what are you going to do about it? You've got to do something because you're losing people to this new guy. You can't just sit back and let him take your people. You can't just watch as his ministry grows and yours disintegrates. You can't allow him to be successful at your own expense. Now, whether we like it or not, this is still the general thinking in life. And yes, even in ministry. We tend to measure the success of any event by the number of people who attend. Whether that is a corporate worship services like we're having today, a Sunday school class like you might attend in a few moments, or the annual senior adult Christmas lunch that we had this past week. People always want to know how many were there. Was it a good crowd or was it not? This is a way of gauging the success of any event and therefore having pride in it if the event was indeed successful. You see, those who organize and put effort into these events want to know that their effort has been worth it, that their time and investment was worth it in the fact that many people came. And if it is not, then they are likely to be discouraged and, yes, even defeated. No Sunday school teacher wants to spend their time getting ready for a Sunday school class, studying the scriptures and organizing their thoughts, only to walk into a class and just have a handful of people. But then we actually take this a step further, and we compare our attendance with others who are doing similar things. How many people did Salem Baptist Church have at their senior adult banquet? How many people did, fellowship, uh, did uh, Fairview Baptist Church have at their Christmas musical? And when we begin to compare what other churches are doing with our own, what we initially thought might have been a success based on the number of people we have can then turn into a discouragement and a defeat again because some other church had a larger attendance than we did. Why is God blessing someone else's ministry more than mine? Why is their Sunday school class growing and mine's not? I'm teaching the Bible just like they are. Why is God blessing them and not me? It just doesn't seem fair. It's very easy to get in that kind of mindset of dueling ministries, thinking that we are competing with others within our own church or with other churches in our own area for success. And frankly, this is the default position, the mindset that we must fight against because we want personal prominence. We live in a competitive society where comparisons are always made. And so while it's nothing new, you will recall that the disciples at one time argued over who was the greatest of the disciples while Jesus was present. Can you imagine that? They were with the Son of God and they were comparing which one of them was the greatest. So how do we react when others get more applause than we do? How do we respond when someone else has more followers on social media or likes than we do? I trust you can see what a contemporary issue this really is. Because this idea of comparing how many followers we have is actually what drives social media. The more followers you have, the more influence you have. And the more influence you have, the more opportunity you might have for a company to actually start paying you to influence the people who are following you. So much so that we even have a job category now for this. People are just called influencers. That's their whole job, is getting enough people so that some company will pay them for their influence. 
But if they start losing that influence, if people start going to someone else, they will lose their influence and they will, of course, lose the profit that they were getting from it. Now, John the Baptist, of course, didn't have to worry about social media. But it was the same mindset and the same problem. So let's turn our attention now to how he faced this decline in his own ministry and the popularity of the ministry of Jesus. Because the way he handled it will be an example for us when we face something similar. Or I need to just go ahead and expand it and say this is the the response that we ought to have in life in general. So how did John respond? Well, not like most people in our day. John responds with a humble admission. We see the gist of this in verse 27, where he acknowledges that everything we have is a gift from God. Now, we recognize that principle, and we pay lip service to it. We might readily say we know that everything we have is a gift from God, but living that out is an entirely different thing. After all, it's my life. It's my family. It's my career. It's my money. It's my ministry. Humility has never been in vogue, I suppose, but certainly not today when it's all about marketing yourself creating your own brand image and profiting from it. If you don't promote yourself, who will? How can you have the legacy that you want to leave, the legacy that you believe you deserve to leave, unless you create an image that people admire and are willing to follow? And that image is often the opposite of humility. Humility is a modest or low view of our own importance. It's the idea that I'm not better than someone else, nor more deserving than someone else. It's not demeaning yourself. Sometimes you will see what what turns out to be false humility, where someone's always demeaning themselves. But false humility is often a sign of really pride, because it's a back way of, of getting people to compliment you. But humility is having a proper perspective, especially when it comes to our relationship with God. And that's exactly what John had. Humility doesn't mean that John was not important. It doesn't mean he was a nobody or nothing. I mean, Jesus later said of John, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has never arisen one greater than John the Baptist. And yet he goes on to say, one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John was a great man who played a great role in pointing people to Jesus. Something that we saw last week was not only his role, but continues to be our role. But then he goes on to say that all of us in the kingdom of heaven are greater than him. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm better than John the Baptist, nor are you. But it means that we are fortunate enough on this side of the cross to have a much fuller revelation than John ever enjoyed. I'll give you another example, Moses. Moses is said to be one of the most humble men of the Old Testament. Indeed, of history. And yet Moses was at the same time a great leader. So humility is not someone who holds a low position or opinion of himself or herself. It is rather someone who understands their true place and position as it pertains to God's kingdom. And so John reminds them, don't you remember I said, I am not the Christ. In fact, we heard John say, I'm not even worthy to unlatch his sandal. As the forerunner, 
He was to point people to Jesus and not accumulate followers for himself. And again, by the way, that is the role of every believer. That should be the aim of every ministry. It is not about me or you making a name for ourselves or a reputation for ourselves. It's not about us making a name for Beaver Dam Baptist Church or a name for a specific ministry within Beaver Dam Baptist Church. We are to point people to Jesus and not us. We are not the story. We are merely merely tellers and sharers of the story. Any success we have in the ministry is a gift from God, as is everything in life. That was John's point. John says, yes, they were coming to me, but it wasn't because of me. They were coming to me because it was a gift of God. And then John says, yes, they're leaving me, and they're going to Jesus. But that, too, is a gift of God. It was all in God's purpose. It was all in God's plan. And that's a tough attitude and approach for most of us to have, but it is the biblical response. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now we are, of course, nearing the end of our countdown to Christmas. Only one week left until we get to unwrap all of the gifts that someone has taken the time to purchase and wrap for us. We like to be surprised. We like to receive something we didn't expect or even to know that we did get the one gift that we so desperately wanted. But when it comes to life, everything we have, John says, is a gift from God. And that's why John could be content even watching people leave his ministry and go to Jesus. In fact, It's not just that he was content. It was that he was joyful. He wasn't resigned to this fate. This was his purpose. And because his purpose is being fulfilled, he is filled with joy. And so to make the point of this humble admission, he gives us an illustration rooted in the wedding ceremony. Weddings are a a prominent image throughout Scripture Again, Jesus had just attended one in chapter 2. He told several parables based on weddings throughout his ministry. But have you ever noticed that when you, when you read the stories about weddings in the Bible, the bride is not really the focal point. Many times the bride isn't even mentioned. Here the bride is mentioned, but the bride here is not the focal point. The focal point of this story is the bridegroom and what we might call the best man. Now, we know in our culture, the bride or the bride's mother, depending on the family, is the focal point of the wedding. But not so in biblical times. The bride is mentioned, but the best man and the groom take the place here. If you go back to the wedding in chapter 2, it is the bridegroom who gets the credit for the good wine, not the bride or her mother. And so the best man in weddings in Jesus' day had a much greater role than best men do in our day. In our day, best men have two basic roles. They stand next to the groom and give the ring when the time comes. And they perhaps plan a party before the wedding. The best man is the father of the groom or the best friend of the groom. But in biblical days, the best man 
was much more involved. It was his job to arrange the wedding and to preside over the marriage feast. He was in essence a liaison between the bride and the groom. And his job was to make sure that everything took place until that moment when the bride and the groom came together and then of course he faded into the distant. He did not try to upstage the bridegroom. He knew that was not his role. So the point here is that the best man was not the bride and the bride was not his. She did not belong to him, nor did he have any desire for her because his role was to bring the bride and the groom together. There's another Old Testament story. You remember by the, the, a man by the name of Samson? Samson was a mighty warrior who, who killed many Philistines, but he actually married a Philistine girl. But because he went back home after the wedding at some point for some reason, the father of the bride gave his wife to a, another Philistine. When Samson came back and found out about this treachery, he killed more Philistines in response. And so the Philistines asked, why is Samson, or they asked, who is doing this? And then they were told that Samson was the one doing it, and he was doing it because the father had given the bride to his best man. What do the Philistines do in response? They go and kill the father and the bride because even they understand that the bride was not meant for the best man. Even they seemingly agree with Samson's grievance against their own people, recognizing that the, uh, the best man had no right to the bride. And that's what we see here. John's joy is bringing the bride and groom together and then getting out of the way. We are the church, and we are called the bride of Christ. Jesus, of course, is the bridegroom to who John is pointing. And as a result, he never wanted the attention. He knew that belonged to the Messiah. So let me ask you, what is your attitude? Are you willing to be content pointing people to Jesus and not being the center of attention? Are you willing to find your joy in doing just that rather than in pursuing your own dreams, achievements, or legacies? Are you willing to admit that Christmas is not about you and it's not even primarily about family time as much as we might enjoy that? It is about Christ and his kingdom. Yes, we are blessed to have a part to play in all of that, but our part with John is to point others to Jesus. And so from this moment on, John begins to fade from the pages of history. Other than the account of his imprisonment told by Matthew and Mark, we hear very little else from him. But he doesn't fade away in bitterness and anger. Instead, he leaves the scene with joy because Jesus has arrived. Yes, I realize that he had moments of doubt when he was in prison, but those don't override his joy. Have you found your joy in Christ? Well, all of that then leads to our confession for today, the part we need to memorize and apply, and that is, in this case, a universal confession. He must increase, but I must decrease. Universal in the sense that this is not a confession merely for John, it is a confession for every believer. Our role, our privilege as believers is to advance the kingdom of God, not our own kingdom. 
We are not here primarily to leave our own legacy, but to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. It is better for our names to be forgotten and Christ to be glorified than for people to marvel at all we accomplished and think we did it apart from Jesus. Remember what Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. So we're not trying to draw people to ourselves. I know we are still not at Christmas. I said a moment ago, we've still got a week to go. And I know I always get on to you about the time of Thanksgiving and say, don't skip Thanksgiving for Christmas. And yet I'm about to, I'm about to break my own rule. For just a few moments, I'm going to skip Christmas and go on to the new year. Because when the new year starts, it is a time for us to look back on what we may or may not have accomplished in that previous year, and then to look forward to the year to come. And of course, along with that, we set goals, we make resolutions, etc., many of them having to do with how we can better ourselves and further succeed, in this case, in 2023. And there is nothing wrong with those things. I'm certainly not encouraging the opposite. I'm not asking for you to be apathetic nor lazy. But here is what I'm arguing for. As you in a couple of weeks do look forward to the new year, will you do it with this confession in mind? What will you do in 2023 that will make sure he increases while you decrease? What changes will you make in the name so that the name of Christ will be glorified through your words and actions? What adjustments will you make so that you don't view yourself as so important and others as mere stepping stones for your own future? How will you change your interaction on social media to fit into this confession? Now, there's a tough question, isn't it? I don't mean by that that all you can post in the new year is scripture verses and pithy Christian sayings. But social media, by its nature, is about how important I am. It's not designed for humility. And yet he must increase, but I must decrease, must also apply to this contemporary aspect of life. In fact, you notice there is the word must. He must increase. I must decrease. It does not say might. It does not say probably. It does not say maybe. He must. In fact, there's three musts in this chapter. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. In that same dialogue, Jesus said, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And here, the response to those two things, he must increase, but I must decrease. Most all of us have had the experience of being out in the country late at night, no longer surrounded by the lights of the city or artificial illumination. The darkness is something we're not used to because it's darker than, than we are used to. We tend to always have lights on around the house of some sort. And so on a cloudy night out in the country, the darkness is pervasive. But on a clear night out in the country, you can see the stars. You can sit there and marvel at the expanse of the heavens that God has blessed us with. Some of you who know more about it than I do might start naming stars or constellations, picking them out of the night sky in all of its brilliance. There's just something about sitting outside in the country on a clear night 
looking up into the sky that fills you with awe. But let me ask you this. How come you never do that during the day? It's an obvious answer, right? During the daytime, when the sun rises, the stars disappear. Now, we know they don't really disappear. We know they're still there. But you can't see them. And you can't see them because the brilliance of the sun's light far surpasses even that brilliant night sky that we were looking at just a few moments ago. That's what John is saying here. And it is what we must say. The sun has arrived. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. In fact, we might go a step further and say the sun is risen. And because the sun has risen, everything else pales in comparison. So will you say with me this Christmas, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Will you say with me this Christmas, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And will you in response say with me this Christmas, he must increase, but I must decrease. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time of year when we highlight your gift of sending your son, the Lamb of God, to die for our sins. The Son of God who has the power to save us. And will you help us this Christmas season to realize that the name and the glory of Jesus must be proclaimed far above ourselves. May he increase while we decrease. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.